Have I mentioned streams before? What about breezes? What have I said about archer fish? Have I said anything about archer fish? When do I say the thing about stars? How many of these things do I say? Should these be seasonal? Do I ever mention that here? Oh, I remember the stars one is next. Many, many stars! And this is the time when you should feel welcome to Out of All Doors. All right, so here's what I do know. I'm Adam Drent, and this is an episode of a podcast called Out of All Doors. From what I can remember, Out of All Doors is a podcast about, like, well, the outdoors, you know, nature. So that seems apparent from the title. So, look, you may have already heard this if you listen to the latest bedtime story, but I dropped my external hard drive this month, and I lost a bunch of work. And unfortunately, that included all of the previous Out of All Doors stuff. And I don't usually like to pull the curtain back like this, but in the past, when I was writing my Out of All Doors segments, I relied heavily on rereading my previous segments to know what I was supposed to be doing. Like, previous episodes served as templates for me. So that was same with, like, the audio project portion. Like, knowing where to put the music and just how everything was arranged. And now all of those templates are gone. So I'm a little adrift here. Actually, I'm a lot adrift. I tried listening to an old episode to get an idea of what kind of stuff I was supposed to write and how I was supposed to put things together, but I couldn't get them to stream or download, and I'm positive that stupid ghost was interfering. He wants this episode to be a disaster, and uh, I, you know, I'd like to be able to blame the breaking of the external hard drive on him as well, but that was all me. But still, I'm sure it delighted him. Anyway, so that's why this episode is starting so poorly and why I'm assuming it will continue to go poorly for the remainder of this episode and on into future episodes until I either successfully listen to a recent episode and copy that or else just spontaneously remember how to make episodes. Uh, We weren't still doing Squall stuff, were we? No, surely not. One big problem is that I can't remember what stuff I've already done. Like, I know I sometimes do little lists of tips and stuff in the intro, but... Have I ever done a list of the benefits of an urban rooftop garden? I have no way of knowing. So what if I do a list of benefits of a rooftop garden in this episode, but every item on the list is the same as the ones on a different episode? You listeners would hate that. But also, what if I think of a great idea that I haven't done before, but I'm worried that I have, so I decide not to do it? Of course, you listeners won't know that happened, but still, I assume you hate the potential for that to happen, because that's you being deprived of a great list of tips or you know information tidbits or something and like i don't is there is there supposed to be music under this part and if so what music look i don't want you to panic because if you're hearing this then i guess that means that i did make an episode which i guess means i figured something out right but right now i'm still on the front end of this mess so it seems kind of overwhelming like i remember that during this time of the month i pretty much always wonder if the episode is actually going to come together this time but this time i'm really wondering if it's all going to come together this time so if whatever follows this intro is a complete disaster you'll know why i just want to make sure you know why but i feel like i should do something informational or i don't know at least not so negative and self-pitying in the intro so without any further self-pity here's a list of uh 
Okay, it's got to be something I'm sure I haven't done before. So, okay, here are some tips for uh, for not breaking your external hard drive. So number one is just be careful. Don't turn your computer so that it pulls the external hard drive off of your bedside stand by the cord and it hits the floor and breaks. And I just remembered that this is the second external hard drive that I've broken. The other one was a long time ago, back when 500 gigs was a nice big external hard drive, but I knocked that one off a desk somehow, so that, don't do that either. I suppose that should have been like number two on the list. But listen, why do they make these things so flimsy? Seriously, my hard drive fell maybe one foot to the floor this time. And they're telling me to fix it. They'd have to send it to some clean room because they have to open the motor and not even the tiniest speck of dust can get in there. So my hard drive falls a foot, and if I want to recover its contents, some grim professional in a hazmat suit has to take it into a perfectly sterile environment like a scientist in a movie investigating an alien disease that arrived on Earth via errant media. Meteor, and that'll take months and cost thousands of dollars? Fine. You know what? That 11,000 words of my novel that I lost were the worst 11,000 words I'd written so far. So, honestly, I'm thrilled to have an excuse to redo them. I'm fixing the plot. I'm moving the action along faster. I'm tidying up all kinds of nagging little threads. I'm clarifying character motivations. And yeah, I lost the Bedtime Stories intro and outro music, too, but I remade it in like 20 minutes. And yes, the tempo might be slightly different, but if I lose listeners over a slight change in the tempo of the intro music, then I'm happy to see them go. If they were only tuning in for the tempo of the opening song, then they were never real fans to begin with. Although if you are one of those people and you're listening to this despite the fact that that song never appears on this show, then I would actually encourage you to not stop listening to Bedtime Stories just because the tempo of the opening and closing song may have changed. Instead, I would encourage you to keep listening, but for a better reason, or if not a better reason, well, just an equally bad but different reason. And look, I know it's going to seem like a distasteful time to mention the Patreon, because it'll seem like I tried to drum up a lot of pity before mentioning it, but I'm mentioning the Patreon now for your sake, because there's bonus content on there that you can't get elsewhere, which so far is just some, uh, it's like four story-ish things I wrote while I was in grad school. But you can get access to it at patreon.com slash hugepop for a minimum of a dollar a month. And for what it's worth, all that old stuff is safely stored on an external hard drive that I have not managed to destroy yet. Which reminds me that I should probably make sure that stuff gets stored in more than one place, because even though I'm saying this in the very midst of a list of ways to not break an external hard drive, I'm very much the do-as-I-say-not-as-I-do kind of guy, so that external hard drive is probably doomed, because... Look, I know I'm still stuck in the middle of the first tip for not breaking your hard drive, and I know that tip was basically summed up in the first three words. It was just be careful, if I recall correctly. But I'm a fundamentally careless person. Do you realize what a miracle it is that I've never spilled Dr. Pepper on a laptop? Being careful is a difficult thing to choose to do, because not being careful is almost always a result of not thinking about what you're doing. And if you're not thinking about what you're doing, how are you supposed to choose to do otherwise? You're too preoccupied to choose to do otherwise. So, my external hard drives don't stand a chance, and if you're already the kind of person who thinks she or he needs tips uh, for preventing the breaking of external hard drives, then your external hard drives don't stand a chance either. Alright, number two is just be so gentle with your external hard drive that it's stupid. Be stupidly gentle with your external hard drive. Be, like, sarcastically gentle with it. Be so gentle with it that you'd be embarrassed for any other living thing to see how gentle you're being with it. Embarrass yourself with how gentle you're being with your external hard drive. You should be blushing self-consciously throughout even the most minor of external hard drive handlings. You should say, shh, shh, shh. 
while you're gently handling your external hard drive in order to put yourself in an appropriately gentle frame of mind. And remember that the appropriate level of gentleness for handling an external hard drive is disgustingly, repulsively, grotesquely gentle. You should be sickened by how gentle you are with your external hard drive. Sickened and filled with shame. And uh, I, uh, there's something I say. It's... Begin... Let's... Well... Let's begin, shall we? And then if I remember the right thing that I'm supposed to say, I'll come back and edit it in later. My name is Raphael Bocephus Wafontaine. I'm a professional actor, content creator, and critic. I know this will be jarring and disorienting for some of you, but please hear me out and all will be made plain. My name is not Cousin Ben or Poet Ben, and this is not regarding the dawn or a poetry reading. This is just me, Raphael, talking to you, the listener. This month, I felt that you and I needed to have a conversation about some larger, broader issues, and that conversation meant breaking with my traditional format for a bit, and I asked for your patience as I explain. Since the first cave paintings, there have been individuals who have asked, what does that mean? Granted, they are individuals who do not really fathom how art functions, but those individuals do exist despite their cultural and philosophical impairments. And those individuals brought with them and their questions a problem which has become as pressing as any that we can tackle as a modern art-producing and consuming society. And that problem was ignorance. No matter how clear or plain the artist is, there is always a few hundred or thousand people who cannot make heads or tails of the intended message, and those people always cause trouble for the artistic community. Whether that trouble was stoning, burning at the stake, false confessions under duress of torture, imprisonment, banishment, lease cancellations, lawsuits, or Starbucks membership revocation, the trouble always resulted in the artist's work or their intended lifespan being compromised. We don't have the privilege of asking Herman Melville what exactly he intended to communicate when he wrote Moby Dick, so why should we have the privilege to ask any other artist what they meant? We should all be forced to interpret and grapple with all art one-on-one -on, -one on an equal playing field, and no one should be given an unfair advantage. We shouldn't have a cheat sheet for hints from the artist, and we shouldn't subject the artist to having to offer some sort of explanation or justification for their work either. And yet, here I am, about to do what must never be done. Explain my art and elaborate the themes and motives in a massively, massively simplified form for the consumers. And why would I violate such a passionately held conviction of mine? because I feel the message of my art is too desperately needed in these frightening times for me to risk anyone missing the point and thereby continuing on with their life unenlightened. When I set about to create my podcast segments for the Out of All Doors show, my purpose and intended statement was laser-focused in my mind. There was a very specific issue I was intending to address. I was taking aim squarely at the rampant pretentiousness and bloated egomaniacal driven state of the art world as we know it today.
and specifically in our case here, the world of nature-related art. All a carefully thinking, artistically savvy individual has to do is to casually take a look around him, and everywhere you go, you will see that there are self-proclaimed great artists that produce absolutely garbage and are attempting to pass it off as masterpieces. And to make matters worse, the critical community at large has totally... Oh, okay, I got the uh, chips and photos. Are you ready oh, to record? Hey, hey, oh. hey, what are you doing? Uh, no, nothing. I'm just, I'm testing the levels. Yeah, but you've got six-minute file going there and, and a script? What? What? This? This? No, no, that's, uh, uh just vocal exercises. I'm just warming oh, up my voice. Yeah? Yeah. Hey, give me that back! Hey, hey quit that! R- Raphael Bocephus? Uh, what of it? <laughs> Well, is this that experimental alter ego concept you were talking about? <laughs> and what if it was? Huh? What if it... You said that was a joke. That you weren't even going to do it at all. Who says I am, huh? Who says I am, Dwayne? I see how it is. So now that whole Jason Casey thing is all done, you think the podcast has room for you to pull something like this and, and you just you just want you, more airtime. You, you really don't understand what, I'm t- what well, we're doing here. What about right? our plans? What about regarding the dawn? Dwayne, once again, your shocking simplicity and complete inability to abstractly think comes bumbling to the foreground, knocking the metaphorical Ming vase over and destroying any hope of enlightenment via the work of a true master. Oh, and I'm about to knock something over. Oh, hey, get away. Get away from that. Why are you doing? Stop. Why are you pulling my hair? Quit it. You always hey, bite. Uh, oh, I'm not that. Oh, quit. Ah. Stop it. Stop it. <laughs> Regular contributor Matt writes in with the five people you meet at a volcano. Number one is the patterned saint. This well-attired, well-coiffed, well-postured man adorns himself in a garment of the finest fabric while creating a distinguished presence on the very lip of the volcano and calling out blessings and curses to the roiling magma below, inculcating those around him in the dark arts of volcanism by speaking truth to power. Yes, the patterned saint is not only a sight to see and respect, but a force to be reckoned with as well. Yes, his words shall be heeded as they carry themselves out like a beautiful clarion call over the rumblings of the volcano below. And to be clear, no, the patterned saint is not some super weird kid with an ugly robe who's badly reading pages plagiarized from young adult fantasy novels. He's a real saint wearing appropriate garb, and he is to be respected. Number two is the Hawaiian Timeshare Realtor. Smiling and cracking wise, the Hawaiian Timeshare Realtor can be seen at the volcano discussing with unsuspecting tourists the bargain basement property costs, unique surroundings, and one-of-a-kind thermal benefits of a house perched on the rim of the volcano. That's not smoke, it's steam, health steam. Stay alo-home to your new home away from home, you'll hear him say, adding... Iceland has the most volcanoes per capita and the healthiest people on Earth. Coincidence? You tell me. And while you were initially skeptical about the prospect, I mean, come on, a house on a volcano? I mean, you'd have to... You slowly come to realize that it's it's really not such a bad idea after all. I mean, if you were to just get it, you could at least try it out for a year or five years to get the five-year discount. Yeah, can't miss the discount. All right, you'll take it. Number three is the extreme athlete. 
The extreme athlete has been eyeing this volcano for, like, months, scoping various routes to surf down. It's a challenge, sure, but he's ready to challenge himself. When he finally takes the plunge, it's a sight for all to see, as the extreme athlete masterfully navigates the vertiginous volcano walls, not letting the loose scree trip him up as he surfs all the way down to the lake of molten fire below and instantly dies. And just as he disintegrates into non-matter, another extreme athlete appears at the volcano rim, surfboard in hand, having just heard some rad scuttlebutt about this volcano's gnarly slope. Number four is the Volcano Timeshare Tourists. Check these idiots out. They're being led up here to a volcano to buy some property? Are they out of their minds? What a couple of grade-A chumps. And there's the realtor, smiling to beat the band, and they are just eating it up. What do they think they're going to do with a house on the rim of a volcano? It's idiotic. I mean, sure, you have the views of the beautiful cove right there, and yes, it is unique, no one can argue with that, but I don't know. I mean, well, okay, so, so how much does it cost? Only that much? For the whole stretch of property? What if I gave you, say, this much? Yeah, yeah, listen, now or never, I'll buy the whole thing as long as they don't get it. Or I'll pay double, whatever, just give me that spot. And number five is the Doomsday Taunter. As his name suggests, the Doomsday Taunter is a survivalist who spent the last 20 years extensively preparing for a global meltdown from nuclear war. A genetic superbug transmitted across populations, chemical warfare dispersed in the water or air, internecine resource battles breaking out across his homeland, even solar flares. But so far, nothing. Zip. Here he is, his apocalypse supplies expiring or going stale, his bunker triple reinforced and immaculately clean, and he can't use it for the life of him. But because of a documentary he recently fast-forwarded through, the Doomsday Taunter now feels a massive volcanic eruption could be the real cause of Armageddon, and so he booked a flight out to the nearest volcano, where he sits day and night waiting for the volcano to erupt, telling the volcano it's too scared to erupt, telling it its lava is hot, but not that hot, and saying he's seen better volcanoes at middle school science fairs. So far, his japes have produced no measurable reaction from the volcano, but experts feel it's only a matter of time before it blows and ensures all of our destruction forever. The doomsday taunter finally vindicated. Have we been here before? In some ways, it seems very familiar, but in other ways, it seems totally new. The familiarity makes us feel like we have been here before, whereas the newness makes it feel like we have not been here before. It's like we recognize some things, but maybe it's because we've seen those same things elsewhere. And also, we don't recognize some things, but maybe we just didn't notice them last time we were here, or maybe we just forgot about them, or maybe they've been added since last time we were here, or subtly changed. And I mean, the things we do recognize, well, maybe that's deja vu, or maybe we had prophetic dreams about them, or maybe by coincidence they look like things we've imagined before. All in all, it's very difficult to say whether we've been here before or not. There's no archive of security camera footage that we can check. There's no guest book that we can flip back through in search of our signatures on pages that correspond with previous dates. But regardless of whether we've been here before or not, they are here to either welcome us or re-welcome us as we enter or re-enter the battery. There is a song entitled Flat Flat Hiss with an exclamation point after each of the three words comprising the title of the song. 
In the song, 31 different species of bats are mentioned by name. Those species are as follows. Free-tailed bat. This is a good bat to know, a good bat to emulate, a good bat to sing about. Mouse-tailed bat. This is the bat of future champions, the bat of total victory, the bat of solemn delight, the bat of survivor's innocence. Sack-winged bat. Ah, of course, a bat to mention in wedding toasts, a bat to sketch respectfully, a bat to enliven anecdotes, the unofficial bat of both honesty and dishonesty, the unofficial bat of both accusation and confession, a bat of high suspense. Disc-winged bat. This bat is a true original, the fizz in your soda pop, the kick in your spicy seasonings, a respecter of none who do not deserve it, a respecter of few who do, This bat has no filter, and yet, bless it, never says so. Sucker-footed bat. Hoo boy, this bat rules. Don't believe me? Fine, don't, because you're the one who's going to look stupid. Funnel-winged bat. A bat for both seasons. This bat is adaptable. This bat knows what time it is, figuratively speaking, and has no idea what time it is, literally speaking. And that's a blend of knowledge and ignorance that this world could use much, much more of. Harpy Fruit Bat. The voice of an angel that not even angels can hear. So sublimely high is its pitch. Angels have to ask other bats if its voice sounds as good as theirs do. That's how they find out that it does. Philippine Dawn Bat. Oh my, oh my, the bat of borderline mischief. He tightrope walks along blurred lines, keeps unrighteous hours, accepts hypocrisy as nature's natural state, shrugs his burdens off at the highest possible altitude, thereby ensuring the most devastating possible falls for his burdens. Sooty Mustached Bat. The lovable rascal. Give it an inch and it'll ask for a mile take your reluctance in stride, impress you with its attitude, and then feign surprise when you grant it the mile after all, as if that were not its plan all along, from the very beginning, from the very moment you first offered the inch. Hairy-legged vampire bat. The bat of lofty ambition. The bat of justified gluttony. The bat of winked at vice. The bat you saw and thought, am I truly good? Dagger-toothed flower bat. Beauty. This bat knows thee when it sees thee, at which point it indicates to thee that thee are indeed beauty. Aye, beauty indeed. Recognized and recognizable. Ghost bat. Pure bat. From wingtip to wingtip and all in between. And proof that one can be the standard without being standard. Little bent-winged bat. A boon to lovers who are also bat lovers and bats who are lovers. This species of bat can both encourage romance and be rather romantic in its own right. Gould's Wattled Bat. Oh, now this bat, ladies and gentlemen, this bat, I encourage you to see it in the wild, in its natural habitat, going about its business with a consistency that will snatch your breath away, if, of course, you're partial to consistency. Little Collared Bat. You've never heard of this bat, okay? You've never heard of this bat. Even now, you've never heard of this bat, understand? White-collared bat. A bat so immune to the depredations of life. A bat so above the frothing fray. A bat so... so... It's an excellent bat! Yellow-bellied bat. 
If this bat has experienced low moments, feelings of desperation, this bat has never let anyone know, not even other bats, not even other bats of its own species. This bat has kept it together, and I will not decide if that is good or bad. Yellow-lipped bat. You will believe this bat to be heavier than it is. You will, in fact, have several misperceptions about this bat, but the others shall remain a mystery for now. Black-eared bat. Here's a family favorite, a bat for all ages. Wholesome, virtuous, and sure, the kids won't get all of this bat's references, but those are there to sweeten the experience for the adults. Black-bellied bat. A towering colossus of the bat world, this bat's influence has spread to every other species on Earth, from the lowliest big cats to the most prestigious worms and everything in between. You'll not encounter a species anywhere that is not in some way standing on this bat's shoulders. Bristle-faced bat. Never a captive, never a captor. This bat lives its belief, but never speaks them. This bat lives by a code never cracked. This bat wants to want the right things, and often does. Ashy-headed bat. There have never been enough of these bats, and there never will be. In an imperfect, but in some ways better world, these bats would be as plentiful as subatomic particles, all subatomic particles combined. Flute-nosed bat. What's left to say about this bat that hasn't already been written in all the yearbooks of Kristen Partnaw's high school classmates? Hog-nosed bat. This is the bat I'm usually alluding to when I'm making allusions to bats that no one picks up on. Like, not only do they not know which bat I'm alluding to, they don't know that I'm alluding to a bat at all. Bear-rumped bat. This bat despises your sickness, finds your infirmity revolting, recoils from your cough, will not acknowledge your wheezing laugh. Bare-backed bat. Each of these bats is born with an invisible twin which dies immediately. Golden-capped bat. This bat covered all of its bases long ago, and its bases remain covered to this day. This bat's bases will never not be covered, and it gleefully accrues all the benefits of that arrangement. Golden-tipped bat. This bat is of aristocratic bearing and charitable heart, which some see as incompatible, and which some use as ammunition for the promotion of a certain viewpoint. But this bat is too smart to be pulled into fruitless arguments. Little Pied Bat. Handle with care. This bat is fragile on purpose for reasons it has chosen not to share. Fisherman Bat. If you're going to think about only one bat this year, make sure this bat is one of the bats in consideration. Hollow-Faced Bat. This bat will sneak up on you, and before you know it, you're deep inside a cave, standing in the pitch dark, wearing a toga, fanning a bat with a palm frond, and wondering if you'll ever see the surface again. We have been here before, in a way. Physically here? Perhaps not, but we have been here before. Because you see, here encompasses many different places. Do you see what we're getting at? The concept is a bit abstract. Our point is that here is not only here. There's no way for us to say this that doesn't sound cryptic. You're going to have to meet us halfway here. You're going to have to want to understand here. You're going to have to be a generous hearer here. Here? Well, it's funny you should mention here, because it's time for us to no longer be here. And with that, we turn and we leave here. By which we mean that we leave the battery. And now, be welcomed to the campfire of chills. 
This month's terrifying story comes from a real listener named Donna Pill, a real listener who says this story is exactly as real and as scary as it sounds. She writes, I was home during the day washing every dish in my house when someone knocked on the front door. Startled, I let out a mild shriek, then straightened my hair and answered the door. On my front porch was a perfectly ordinary man. He was holding a cardboard box about the size of a phone book. I asked him if I could help him. He said that no, I couldn't help him, but that he could help me. I asked him how. He said that in the box he had an external hard drive on which I could store my soul. I asked what the benefit of that would be. He said that I could put my soul on the external hard drive and then go and engage in all kinds of behavior that would normally be bad for my soul and then come home and transfer my soul back into my body and that way no damage would be done to my soul. As someone who's always wanted to do a lot of evil things, I readily agreed. The man opened the box and handed me the external hard drive. I asked him how to put my soul onto it. He said to put the USB cord in my mouth and then just cut and paste my soul over to the external hard drive, which I did. It worked, I exclaimed, and in my joy, I accidentally bumped the external hard drive very lightly against the hem of my shirt. The external hard drive was immediately broken beyond repair, and I lost my soul forever. Well, Donna Pill, difficult as it is to sympathize with someone as excited about doing evil as you were, we do sympathize with you. We all do. At Gentleman's Mills, we know how difficult it is to keep yourself safe, your family safe, your pets safe, your possessions safe, even your external hard drive safe. This month, peruse a selection of our finest safety products, because at Gentleman's Mills, safety is another thing we sell. Number one, the Gentleman's Mills Industrial Spy Complex. Does the NSA's recent announcement that they will archive fewer Americans' emails without a warrant leave you feeling exposed and vulnerable? Install the Gentleman's Mills Security Browser add-in and allow the Gentleman's Mills Security Analysts team to monitor your IP address for any signs of terrorism. Number two, Safety Laser. This very powerful military-grade laser gun has a beam so powerful it can be used to inscribe the word SAFE into cloth, wood, cement, even human flesh. Let them know what's SAFE with Safety Laser. Number 3. SAFE Caller This security-minded device, composed of a pair of walkie-talkies, one you use, the other you place in a safe, can be used to experience true, true safeness at any time. If you feel endangered by a notion, premonition, or physical threat of violence via submachine gun, simply press the SAFE button on your walkie-talkie. In the nearby SAFE, the other walkie-talkie will play a recording of a baseball umpire yelling the word SAFE to the SAFE. Best is that the other walkie-talkie being locked in a safe is certain to play its SAFE recording without interference. Now if that ain't safe, nothing is. Number 4. Pillow Puff Stay Sweets these may look like delicious marshmallows, but they're actually small puffs of toxic cushioning foam that can be placed strategically to avoid even the smallest threat. Harassed by a very bee? Simply position a pillow puff stay sweet on your arm, moving the puff if need be, so the bee will never be able to sting your skin. Or capture the bee and encase him in the puff somehow, as if he were fossilized. This and many other uses. Number 5. Safe Tea 
be stylish and safe at the same time with the new safe tee. This t-shirt, made of vulcanized rubber reinforced with Kevlar overlayer and titanium plates throughout, lets you keep it cool in the classic t-shirt look while not sacrificing any safety. The shirt weighs 85 pounds. Number 6, Total Recall Safe Edition. This very, very safe version of the classic sci-fi thriller comes in a thick cloth case instead of harmful plastic with all those sharp sides, and has two outer cozies to keep it both protected and soft to the touch. It also comes with a limited subscription of bodyguard services. Two highly trained bodyguards stand over you and protect you as you watch the film. The bodyguards have been trained to stop intruders from hurting you only while the film is playing, however, and will otherwise stay at your house searching through cabinets and highboys, reading your best books, drinking the water out of your vases, and taking you hostage to extort money from your extended family. We at Gentleman's Mills recommend keeping Total Recall on at all times to keep the bodyguards on your side. Number 7. Gentleman's Mills presents Daniel Boone's, trademark pending, original coonskin hat. Be a real frontiersman with this coonskin hat, which is both authentic and very warm. This is not an ordinary coonskin hat, though. Instead of using a dead raccoon, we have drugged raccoons on our Gentleman's Mills factory premises and put them in hat boxes. The raccoons sit peacefully on your head when there is no danger, but at the first sign of distress, the raccoons shriek and lunge claw first at your assailants or your face, nullifying the threat instantly. Number 8. The Softness Detecting Pendant Worn on a chain around the neck, the softness detecting pendant is capable of determining when you might be falling and, once you confirm that you are indeed falling, the pendant identifies and blares out the softest nearby surface onto which you should try to land if possible. Number 9. The Grappling Hook Dissolver If, God forbid, you ever get a grappling hook stuck in you, just sprinkle this highly discerning acid on the grappling hook and watch in awe as the grappling hook, and only the grappling hook, dissolves into a liquid which, unlike a grappling hook, just leaks right out of you. Number 10. Bearware Bearware This computer program keeps tabs on the world's bear populations and sends you a daily reminder that bears still exist up until the moment they go extinct, at which point you are granted permission to stop being aware of them and the dangers they present. Number 11. The No Burn Rope Sick and tired of rope causing more harm than it prevents by leaving painful burns on your body whenever it moves rapidly against your skin? Well, Gentleman's Mill's no-burn rope is so slick and soft and smooth that you'll delight as it glides with nary a hint of friction through your grasping palms. Some users have compared our no-burn rope to a piece of thick, cooked spaghetti soaked in rancid olive oil. This product seems to actively resist knotting. Number 12, Elbow Softener. How many times have you hurt a family member or friend with an inadvertent strike from your hard, hard elbows? Well, instead of doing that, why not just inject Gentleman's Mills Elbow Softener directly into your elbows one time and then marvel at how your elbows develop the texture and consistency of French silk pie filling overnight? Number 13, Lives Boat. Whereas most ships come equipped with lifeboats that, according to their own very names, are only designed to spare one life each, the Gentleman's Mills Lives Boat is designed to save every life on the ship in the event that the ship sinks. How do we accomplish a feat so noble as providing a lives-saving vessel capable of accommodating every single passenger on a sinking ship? Why, Lives Boat is at least as big as the ship itself, sometimes bigger. Number 14, the Woodland Burglehorn. 
If a burglar tries to steal supplies from your campsite during the night, the woodland burgle horn connected to your phone will dial the nearest ranger station and unleash a frightful, panicked-sounding blast the moment someone on the other end picks up. And number 15, the solid poison chili strainer. Worried that your campfire chili has been poisoned? Simply place this strainer over the top of your bowl and then pour the chili into your mouth. The solid poison chili strainer will strain out any chunks of solid poison larger than a kidney bean. Alright, okay, so in spite of the fact that I've kind of forgotten how this show is supposed to go the one thing i do remember clearly is the one thing i'd most like to forget and that is the uh, the state of the underappreciated nature segment which one could be excused for believing to be damaged beyond repair but here's the thing the demise of the external hard drive for all its inconvenience gives me a chance to start over to remake the underappreciated nature segment from the ground up Now I can really look at it with fresh eyes. I can really evaluate every element of it and try to determine where it went wrong. So that's what I'm doing. I'm willing to change anything and everything about the segment if that's what it will take to make it work. Because look, I'll be honest, I really thought this segment was going to be the breakout hit segment for Out of All Doors. Like, the segment that put us on the map and made people sit up and take notice, like things that have been put on maps make people do. And I still believe it has the potential to do that, The problem has been in the execution, of course, which has been dreadful, but maybe, and this is what breaking my hard drive made me ask myself, but maybe there was a problem buried within the concept itself. Only, you know, just one small problem that if I could excise it would cause everything else to fall into place, including the execution of the concept, which, again, I acknowledge has been very, very bad. And you know what? I did find the problem. The subjects I've chosen for the past three attempts at the segment, Poison Oak, Tapeworms, and Rats, are all too underappreciated. Specifically, they aren't really appreciated at all. But the word underappreciated does not have to mean unappreciated. So why not instead choose subjects which are already appreciated, but are not appreciated enough? And uh, as soon as I had this revelation, everything else just fell into place in my mind. Uh, it, it all finally made sense. I decided to keep everything else about the core concept exactly as it was, but choose a subject that's only slightly underappreciated, like, you know, dandelions or mules. This means, of course, that I will still be playing both parts, the interviewer and the representative of the underappreciated thing from nature, and I will again be using post-production techniques to help distinguish the roles from each other for you, the listeners. So, this month's underappreciated nature is a mulberry. Let's go to the interview and restart this segment on the right foot. Mulberry. All right, Welcome so this is the, the character of Adam, the interviewer speaking. Nature segment on Out of All Doors. Thanks, Adam. And this I'm is Mulberry responding. Well, I'm relieved that you're okay, excited. Okay, so this is the interviewer speaking again, not Mulberry. So don't mix them up. Episodes to see what the segment was like, and that you might be worried about how this would end up. Well, I did listen now, to the segment. Now this is Mulberry speaking, not mess, the interviewer. So keep that in mind as he continues with his line. Right, and the core concept is brilliant, of course. Once you find the best means of tapping that potential, well, you're going to have a hit on your hands. Yeah, that's what I'm hoping. So this is obviously the interviewer responding to Mulberry. You probably don't even need to be told. Sure, yes, I'm ready when you So this is Mulberry responding to the interviewer's question. Yes, indeed. Okay, and that was... 
This is okay, well. Okay, so I, Mulberry, I think the great was the uh, interviewer, and, and the yes was okay. So that part wasn't important. Do you think you this is the, uh, the appreciation that you're due? What uh, what did he say? I actually do. Think well, whatever. I'm that was the interviewer saying it. So, but if you think I deserve so, uh, more appreciation, okay. So this well, is Mulberry's response, but I missed the question. But I'm the one playing the role, so I think I remember it. It was about how. Well, I mean, wait, okay, so there's more being said now. So it's a pie, or a mulberry right, uh, tart, or a uh, mulberry milkshake. So that, I believe I that was the interviewer. True, honestly, and the interviewer in the mulberry, the interviewer in the mulberry are kind of having a discussion here, like a slight desserts, difference of opinion. You know? But it's all <laughs> amicable. Okay, uh, okay, so that, that was, was the interviewer laughing. Laugh. That by himself, was a good laugh. or no, no, that was that was both of them laughing. So there were two different laughs there, right? Appreciated. Uh, so Ooh, I'm not me? sure which said which yeah, line there, you. but that's not important. Why would so I feel the, So the interviewer is asking Mulberry the same question again, I guess. And, uh, wow, wait, that's so I, great. I guess so Mulberry no was plugging his podcast there, which I mean, is fine. Yes, often use appearances for promotional thing, purposes. So, so, so the interviewer just called himself a Barry for okay, some reason. Wait, which no. one am I? Okay, look, I did You're not the mix interview. the roles up again. The interviewer Great. definitely just called so himself a Barry. You, the and Mulberry, uh, are saying we should get back to right. talking about me? Uh, okay, so uh, I know it sounds like the wait. characters are confused about uh, which roles uh, they're playing, but uh, that is okay. not the case, uh, and I know which one is which. Up, so just trust right? me when I tell before, you that, wait, hold uh, on, are they wrapping it up? What's Yes, but I don't know if I'm the one who can say it's over or it's over. Uh, it's uh, it's oh did he just say it's over? Yeah okay so it's over. Um, so that was the interviewer who said the interview was over obviously because he's the, the he's the one who would decide that so it makes sense that would, he he'd be the one to say that. So that was so that was the realization of the new vision for the underappreciated nature segment. This is how it's supposed to sound, I think. So uh, well I'll have to re-listen to make sure, but I'm confident this is how the segment is going to be going forward and i hope that excites you as much as it excites me so thanks for listening and if you think of anything from nature that doesn't get the proper amount of appreciation even if it already gets a lot of appreciation then just write in or tweet at me and let me know hey adam this month i got to follow up with my meeting with professor jim during his planning period at the hobo school When I showed up, he was waiting for me and quite excited to talk. He showed me in, and we sat on some cement blocks around the classroom's simulate campfire, which was just a cardboard box with flames drawn on it in red crayon. We started talking about how it was he became a professor of advanced hobo studies at this school and what his qualifications were. As it turns out, Jim was given the shed and house by his uncle, and therefore became the only person in the community with property to have this college in. Also, Jim can't be out on the rails with the rest of the hobos because he's allergic to campfire smoke, sleeping on a hard train car floor, the cold, eating out of garbage cans, dogs, and running to get into train cars. So it seems that he was the only logical choice to be professor on hobo studies, according to his peers. So I asked him if he could explain the origin and nature of this hobo-hermit feud. He went way back to the origins of hermits, he told me, just like I had discovered. In the early days, hermits were merely actors, living in European aristocrats' gardens, and that eventually they were forced to move to the United States. When he explained it to me, he claimed that they chose to leave Europe for better crowds in the United States. 
supposedly. But he said that eventually there was a sharp disagreement amongst HAG members about how to best pursue their craft. A large group of them believed that, in the face of dwindling demand, the best option was to split into traveling troops of actors and put on plays and performances. And the other side insisted that they should just stick to what they knew best, and to try and get residents as garden hermits like they did in Europe. The argument eventually got so bad that they split apart, and the hermits that wanted to be traveling actors left Hag and adopted a different role. They became hobos. You heard that right, Adam. Both sides are the same group. They're both different sides to the same smelly coin. Just one group of actors is slightly more mobile than the others, but things got ugly fast. Apparently there were arguments, name-calling, and that soon escalated into large fights, some physical violence, some destruction of property, and eventually ethnic cleansing. <clears throat> Sorry, not, like, not ethnic cleansing like you or I would define it, Adam. Now, you'd have small groups of hobos, or there'd be hermits that would capture other unsuspecting actors and forcefully bathe them against their will, ruining their carefully collected and groomed filth and destroying their costumes and credibility. So, I guess after the two stinkiest classes of humans officially declared war on each other, there were lots of costume casualties, and after a few years, there is a summit called by a hermit named Generva, and peace talks commenced. After a few weeks, an agreement was reached, and the new rules of engagement had been drafted. So from that day forward, they would have battles at pre-ranged locations on certain days, and then they would act as though they were killing each other, and officials would be there to announce a winner. If that sounds familiar, Adam, that's because that's why I saw all those months ago in that field. And it gets weirder, because then the winning team gets a bunch of pine cones from the losers. I couldn't make this up, Adam. Then they record the winners and pine cone numbers and all that, and that's tracked and tallied until, at the end of the year, they announce a winner. And, uh, you get the idea, Adam. It's it's like football, except... But with broken balls and hammers instead of helmets and tackling. So, to summarize this insanity, for anyone who happened to come in late, the hermits and hobos were originally the same group of unkempt people. They now hate each other, because one group didn't want to leave their holes in the ground. And now they stage brawls and wage fake warfare on each other for points in some sort of stinky conference. And then they collect pine cones from each other. And at the end of it all, one side gets a trophy. After this long, I really shouldn't be surprised by something this pointless and arbitrary from these two. But sometimes they just go above and beyond my expectations, I am. And that's all I have for now. I'll see if I can stir up any more clues for next time. Until then... Close your eyes. Have I told you to close your eyes before? Lie down. Have I told you to lie down before? Relax. Have I told you to relax before? You find yourself burrowing through the rich dark earth, 
You dig with your powerful fingers and sharp fingernails. You gnaw through tough roots that you encounter with your teeth. Your nail technician said it couldn't be done. Your dentist said it couldn't be done, but you're proving them both wrong as you knew you would. Your system of tunnels is extensive, labyrinthine. You don't wear goggles because you keep your eyes closed at all times. What is there to see anyway? All is dark. You have made some interesting discoveries. Trash, coins, skeletons, a discarded metal detector, the hubcap from a prehistoric car that must have been ten times as large as the cars we drive today. There are those who would search for pattern in your burrowing. They need look no further than the serene smile on your dirt-caked teeth, for that is where the meaning lies. And as you find yourself burrowing, you also find yourself felling a dead tree with an axe. Once grand, now grim, this tree is an eyesore, a towering corpse sullying the afternoons of all who pedal past it on the bike path for slow cyclists. Your rhythm is not steady. You swing when you feel like it. Chop, 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 chop. And in this way, each swing is an individual act of expression. The burning in your forearms unthaws pleasure deposits in your head. The tree's decades-long yearn to topple rings ecstatic moans from a big hole in its side that sort of looks like a mouth. Like if the tree had a mouth, that hole would be it. There's nothing on the tree to correspond to a tongue, though. You just have to imagine a tongue. The tree wobbles, begins to lean away from the bike path. You chose your chopping point properly. You will not be shouting timber when the moment comes. You will be shouting, Relax! And as you find yourself felling a dead tree, you also find yourself reintroducing a rare type of grass to its natural habitat, a lawn. Your flip-flops, which you purchased at a gas station, say gas station on the bottoms of their soles. So as you walk through the dirt to the designated spot in the lawn where the rare grass is to be replanted, you leave footprints behind you that say gas station. A fleeting advertisement for gas stations in general. And in the grand scheme of the entire history of the universe, well, gas stations themselves will be just as fleeting as your footprints that say gas station. You kneel next to the designated spot in the lawn, rare type of grass in hand. To your right, a watering can with a spout that looks like a flower. To your left, a camera on a tripod pointed down at the designated spot where the rare type of grass will soon be replanted. The rare type of grass's long ordeal in captivity is over and you are its rescuer. You place it in the earth in its designated spot. You use the watering can to water it with water. You take a picture of it. The rare type of grass already looks more comfortable than you've ever seen it look before. It brings a thought tear to your mind's eye while your real eyes stay as dry as a bone, an orbital bone. And as you find yourself reintroducing a rare type of grass to its natural habitat, you also find yourself cooking wild stew over an open flame deep in a fog-filled frosty forest surrounded on all sides by evergreen trees of considerable respectability. The aroma of your stew clings to your coat, and you know that people will be telling you that you smell like wild stew for the next week, and in the case of your most obnoxious acquaintances, for the rest of your life. They will call you wild stew-smelling person, but not because they cannot think of a better name. No, this is their sorry attempt at irony. The joke, as they see it, is that the name is intentionally clunky. You'll be able to tell, because they'll say it like, wild stew-smelling person every time, as if they're struggling to improvise it on the spot, even though they will have already called you that dozens, even hundreds of times. But as the wild stew cooks, you add wild carrots to the pot. You add the meat of wild animals. You add a selection of wild herbs. 
You add chunks of wild bread, and you stir it with a wild spoon, which is a naturally occurring spoon that you were lucky enough to find years ago, and which uniquely qualifies you to make wild stew. The pot isn't wild, though. You bought it at a flea market, and a human or a robot definitely made it, most likely in a factory. Wild pots aren't necessary for making wild stew, but wild spoons are. That's your message to the world. And as you find yourself cooking wild stew in the forest, you also find yourself coloring in the sidewalk with chalk, square by square, never using the same color twice, pulling the chalk from a five-gallon bucket half-filled with chalk, wishing you'd put wheels on the bucket, even though moving it as is isn't that big of a deal. Do you mind if people walk on the sidewalk while you're coloring it in? No, in fact, you apologize to them for being in their way, and they all say the same thing. You missed a spot. Even they don't seem to know why they say it. When will you stop, asks a boy who was dared to ask by his older sister. I'm just going to do one more, you say. You choose a peach-colored piece of chalk. You pause. You look back over your work. Three squares of sidewalk colored in with different colors of chalk, stretching several feet in the other direction. A certain kind of testament to a certain amount of time spent by a certain kind of person on an evening lovely in many non-controversial ways. So why would we mention the controversial ways in which it was lovely, such as the shorts you chose to wear? You begin to color in your fourth and final square of sidewalk. And as you find yourself coloring in a sidewalk with chalk, you also find yourself supervising the erecting of a family-sized tent on an island. You are letting the people who are erecting the tent make mistakes. You are letting the people who are erecting the tent make mistakes. Your reasoning is that they will learn from their mistakes. You are sitting on two lawn chairs, or rather you are sitting in one and you've got the other one turned to face you so that you can prop your feet on its seat. But you could use all of the lawn chairs if you wanted to because you're the only one sitting at the moment, because you're the only supervisor and everyone else is erecting the tent. You consider cracking open either a cold one or a warm one, and you decide to crack open a cold one. You are richly rewarded when, upon taking a sip, it turns out that the temperature of the one you cracked open corresponds to the temperature of the liquid inside of it. You watch as your supervisees tear the family-sized tent into little scraps, how they scatter the scraps to the wind, how they drive the tent poles all the way into the ground like stakes, how they bend the stakes into horseshoe shapes and attempt to shoe one of the island's wild burrows with them. Well, getting kicked by a wild burrow is a good way to learn from your mistakes. And as you find yourself supervising the erecting of a family-sized tent, you also continue to find yourself doing all the previous things that I mentioned and doing many more things that I didn't have time to mention, and that's because you are a collective consciousness spread out over many different bodies, all of which are engaged in different activities which nevertheless point toward a common goal, a goal that could never be apparent to an outside observer, even with a meticulous up-to-the-minute catalog of what every one of your bodies is up to at any given time. You're inscrutable. The individual bodies don't even understand the common goal, but there's also no central body that does understand the common goal. The goal exists only in the collective. Anyway, so that's what's going on in this month's visualization exercise. And now, as you open your eyes, take the piece of being a hive mind with you this month. Even when you're inside, and I do remember this part, it just came back to me, even when you're inside of one or more buildings. Okay, I've got to do some sort of closing informational thing here. Um, This was the 29th episode. Thank you for listening to it. Contributions from 
me, Adam Durant. Casey By did music. JJ Evans did music. Matt Martin, Andy Poppenfoos uh, contributed material. So did Cayman Bird, Ben Bird, Chris Nichols. Uh, let's see, no Grang this time. Uh, anyway, yeah, I have a website, www.hugepop.com. There's a bunch of stuff there. You can listen to my music at themispronouncer.bandcamp.com. I've got another podcast called Bedtime Stories, another podcast called One Man's World. Please write to me if you want at adamdran at gmail.com or outofalldoors at gmail.com or you can find me on Twitter at HugePop or you can text me at 574-518-1983. I love hearing from people. I always respond. Um... I guess just rate and review on iTunes. That's I want that. And I guess we'll see you next next time for episode 30. Okay. 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 <laughs>